I really don't know where to go this morning because I would like to talk to you this morning about what kind of people we are. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. It always gets worse. It never gets better. If you stop drinking here and you start drinking here, you will be worse off when you start again than when you stop. That's because the alcoholism in your system gets worse. The physical disease, the disability known as alcoholism, gets worse. Your body cannot handle alcohol any better today. It handles it less better today than it did yesterday. Every month that goes by, you get older and you can't handle it. So you get sicker faster. Now, one of the things that we learn and you learn in here, that's a physical compulsion. And you can't argue with the physical compulsion. You cannot control a disease with willpower. But the mental obsession always leads to the physical compulsion. Got to keep that in mind. You can't drink one drink of alcohol. One ounce of alcohol sets you off. Lights your fire, ignites the fuse inside you, and boom, you're back into addiction. It's that simple. This is what we are. This is the kind of person that we are. And you remember we were talking about the alibis and defense mechanisms and what they were. Now let's look at ourselves in a different way. These are the personality traits that we alcoholics have in common. These are the things that work against us. These are the things that can trigger some sort, something in you that makes you decide that you're going to drink. These are the things that are going to do you in, so to speak. One of them is this business about our personality. We start off with externalization. Externalization. This means you blame somebody outside yourself for what's happened to you. You blame somebody else for the fact that you're in here. You blame somebody else for the fact that you can't handle alcohol. You externalize. The problem is always Freddie, Johnny, Mary, Susan, the world, the boss. One of the personality things that we carry with us, even when the booze goes out of us, is that we still blame other people for what's happened to us. Now you are, I think you find it easy to recognize when you're externalizing. When you're saying, oh, why are you in the carrier clinic? Because I lost my cool. You didn't lose your cool. <laughs> the fact that you're here is not because you lost your cool. That's not an externalization. It's not the thing outside you. The fact is that you forgot. You didn't come here because your husband gave you a bad time or because your family became unmanageable. You came here because you lost control over yourself. You gave it over to alcohol. Externalization. That's the beginning of one of our problems. So you got to watch that. Now, the second one that we have here is compliance. This is the opposite of denial. You come into the hospital and you, some of you say, I don't have any problem. I'm just a problem drinker. I'm not an alcoholic. Or I don't drink too much. Everybody else does. The opposite of this business of denial of your habit is the person who complies. Oh, yes, I'm a terrible alcoholic. I drink way too much. Everything that I've done in my life has been wrong because I drank too much. And you go on and you comply. Oh, yes, counselor. Thank you. Tell me more. You'll come up after a lecture and you'll say, oh, boy, I needed that. You'll begin to learn real fast that the way to get along in the unit is don't argue with anybody. Listen to it and mouth some of the phrases. Oh, yeah, I'll live one day at a time. I won't take one drink. Complying is dangerous for you and me. The minute we start to comply without believing, without understanding, what we're doing is we're going through a charade. Okay? Another one that comes zinging up here is impulsiveness. 
We are very impulsive people. And on the outside, what got us into trouble is we don't stop to think and to remember that one ounce of alcohol sets off the compulsion in us that makes us get drunk. We forget that impulsively we say, okay, I'll try one. Impulsively, we let impulses run our mind. It's a thing that's lying very, very close to the top of our personality to impulsively decide to get too tired, too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too everything, all at once. We're impulsive. And impulsiveness, if you don't recognize it, can cause you a great deal of trouble when you get out in igniting that business of the mental obsession. Now, another one we've got going for us is kind of fun, too. That's the indecisive one. Now, indecisiveness is us when we're compromising and say, on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, indecisive as we are, we don't make our mind to do things. We will the wisp. We don't know whether we're going to go to work, whether we're not going to go to work, whether we're going to go to the carrier clinic, not go to the carrier clinic, go to the AA meeting, get well, not get well. We don't know which way we're going to go. Remember, you're not all of these things at one time, fortunately. Now, the other one we have, which is a lovely one, this was one that affects, I would say, 99.99%. And that's a low tolerance for frustration. We frustrate so easily. <clears throat> you know, we frustrate easily. And what part of this is we can't take criticism. And we do frustrate as a result of somebody saying, look, uh, uh, your best friend won't tell you, but, you know, you really should use a man's deodorant or whatever it may be. You don't like that kind of criticism. This is the thing that creates problems for us in our homes, in our businesses, and in our recovery. Because we get terribly frustrated when things don't work our way. Interestingly enough, although we are terribly frustrated, and a lot of us end up in, let's say, the sales business. That's a constant business of people putting you down. We don't like to put down. But we find many of us gravitate toward jobs and situations where there is stress. And we develop a high tolerance for stress. We zing along, hanging on like crazy. And you women do the same thing. And you got kids and you got the shopping to take care of. You're running 80% of the budget goes through your hands. You're subject to criticism on everything you buy, how much you spend, how much you don't spend, and what you get done and what you don't get done. It's a very, very stress-producing situation. You find us in those. You find us in jobs where we are in charge of chemical analysis, where we are doctors, lawyers, dentists, you name it. We're people who are in positions of great stress. If you're a guy on an assembly line and you're a craftsman, you've got tremendous pressures on you constantly to be producing better and better and better. We find ourselves in these things and we react poorly to stress. What we do do is we put up with it and we got the stiff upper lip and we go to the bar and bang, we get drunk. Here is one of the favorites of most of the people and it's easiest to recognize is the fact that we are terribly remorseful and guilt-ridden people. By the time you have spent one, two, or three years into alcoholism and done many of the things that privately you don't really like to admit to, including the own inability of yourself to live up to you what you're own ideas were or goals and you're there and you become remorseful you are sorry for what you have done and cannot undo you're sorry for the years months weeks hours you've blown away you feel very guilty about the things that you've done while you've been cropped or the things that you felt like doing or the fact that you've done nothing 
It's an, almost a guarantee. Alcoholism is almost a guarantee to develop a tremendous guilt reaction in all of us. You didn't like yourself before you came in. You still don't like yourself. You're still not too sure that you're okay. One of the reasons that you're not too sure you're okay is because you're very selfish, extremely selfish, self-centered people. We are. By the time we get into alcoholism, one of the things we want to do is we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. If you don't like it, it's very true. Now, what happens is in the booze that takes us in, as this goes along and we keep dulling ourselves, we're further and further away from reality. See? So we're not aware of how selfish we are. But all of a sudden, it catches up with us because we're handled, uh, handed a big package to pay for. A wife's walking out. The boss fires you. Alcoholism, among other things, it extends adolescence. It extends selfishness. It doesn't let us grow up. It turns us into hedonistic people without the charm of hedonistic people. We're just kind of it. All of which, when you figure it out, it's got to add up to this. Low self-esteem. How the hell are you going to like yourself when you know you're selfish? You know you'd rather drink than do anything in the world. Because you've proved it time after time. Rather than do anything else like go and eat your dinner on time, you'd rather drink. Rather than make love to your wife when it's about 11 o'clock. And I say, I have one more for a road, baby. And find a road disappears. You end up with a terrible, low picture and image of yourself, which is inside yourself, and you know you're no good. The thing is, when you are not drinking and when you are not enmeshed in the alcoholism, you're okay. Recovering alcoholics have a tremendous amount of charisma for life. For life itself, and they have an awful lot to offer other people. But we end up this way. And this is a very important one to remember. And you've got to work on it. You really do. Because you can't get better and get well unless you like yourself. You've got to accept yourself. What happens to a lot of people with a low self-esteem, bad image of themselves, they become very grandiose. It's the inferiority complex. It hides behind the guy. It's a blusterer. You've seen that kind of guy. Hell, he hasn't got anything going for him. Oh, boy, you listen to him. I got another deal coming up around the corner. I see you smiling. Yeah. Okay. What we do is we put on a great front for other people. We become grandiose in our behavior. We become grandiose and push down the other people. We become grandiose in our actions and our thoughts and our words and our deeds and in our imagination. We compensate for being schnooks by acting like we are emperors. Okay, dependency. Now, here's a good one because two things happen in dependency. One is you depend upon your spouse, if you're a guy, to phone the office and say, well, he isn't in again because he's got agent flu. Well, yeah, he's got another cast of the agent flu. Yeah. Once a week, right. Okay. Somebody else is covering up for you and you're dependent and you really don't like this being dependent business. That's one of the things that happens to you. The other one is you become dependent very often an institutionalized dependency where you keep going from one rehab center to another, shopping around, not for sobriety, but to get enough well to go back and do what you were doing before, which is to drink yourself into oblivion, and then when you get too bad, then come back again. And you've got spouses which who will help you do this. One of the things for you to remember is, did you ever happen to think that maybe out there they like you the way you are because you are an easily controlled blob? 
You are a wet, squishy, easily controlled blob, and if you get out of hand, all you have to do is just kind of give you the knee and you'll fall down. But dependency, then we become dependent upon institutions to put us back together again, and we have a bigger cyclic disease than the guys just drinking out there. We have a high-level 20th century social security kind of disease where you drink and you get high and then you get drunk and then you get hungover and then you get institutionalized. And then you keep doing this and you're sent back and maybe you can put together your kind of guy that makes uh, not quite 90 days, 89 days on the AA program, time after time after time, we abdicate. You're de this dependency becomes an abdication. Many men do this. They don't run the checking account. They give that to the old lady, and then they bitch like hell because the old lady doesn't have any money to pass out. And then you hate her. You put her in a position of being a matriarch, etc., etc. Dependency. Dependent in all the areas of our lives, but not able to admit the fact that, man, we need help. Why? Because you don't have the information. You're not dumb and you're not stupid. You just don't know. You haven't heard what the facts of life are. You don't know that medically you have a disease called alcoholism and that historically any addictive disease requires some help from the outside to break the cycle. This cycle here that's going to kill you has to be broken in some way, and that's where a place like this comes into play. So the other thing we have, interestingly enough, and this is where we get into many paradoxes like this, that we are terribly independent. You come in here and you are the chief therapist in charge of recovery. You're going to tell us how you're going to get well. I can do it myself. I can get well myself. I don't need that old AA. Independent. Independence can be a dangerous thing. Mom, I can do it myself. This is the one that says I can stop drinking. This is the one that says I have controlled my own destiny successfully for all these years and I now can do it about alcoholism. And I submit to you, you can't. Because what you have is a fatal, progressive, and incurable disease that does not respond to independence any better than it responds to aspirin. There's no way you can cure your disease by yourself, the disease of addiction. No way. just can't be done. Hostility. I do not have a special on hostility and anger. But one of the things that does happen to us is that because we comply... Because we are forced to do a lot of things that people don't like, or that we don't like. We're forced to do an awful lot of things. The alcoholic would like to be left alone and do his own thing. Let's face it. I would like to do my own thing. I don't like all this garbage that's laid on me by, by wives and children and by the boss and by that sort of stuff. I would like to do this. The fact that I can't get my own way, that I frustrate. And if you're honest with yourself, you're going to say, yeah, I'm very easily frustrated. You are, and I am. And I don't like to be put down, and I don't like criticism and all that sort of stuff. What happens to all these reactions, to all this emotion? Well, since it's negative, it forms a hostility, a deep-seated rage that's inside of us, but way down about four or five levels inside. Now, you can argue with it all you want to, but that's where it is. And just as in nature, nature abhors a vacuum and will squirt something in there all the way from seawater to air. The same way is that with hostility, it has to do something. Hostility creates a reaction in your body and in your mind. And we are hostile people, smiling on the outside as we listen and say, Wow! Did he do? We, we, we do this. Now, 
This is something that you work along with yourself as you realize. When when you start to get sober, here's your personality. All the wonderful things about your personality, and it's been overlaid by booze. So that what you got is you don't even see yourself. But you take the alcohol out of your system, and you know what's going to happen. There you are, naked. All those people can see you the way you are. All your hostilities, your angers, your reactions. Or, if you're afraid to show them, they have to sit on them. And they're walking around with you day after day and, and all, you know, morning, noon, nighttime too. Sentimentality. Some of you are what I call Red Crossers. You're very interested in what's happening with the rest of the patients in this hospital and especially those other poor suffering alcoholics. And you run up and you want to get literature and you want to help them, help them, help them. You run to the defense of the underdog. You're too harsh on that person, counselor. The sentimental slob. This is the guy that he's in the bar and he has too many. And he begins to cry a little bit. Oh, it's just a terrible thing. You just don't know what's happening. This world is so long. I'm stuck on that poor doggy. That poor doggy. Blackie the dog. You keep on listening to this guy. He's talking about his dog. Finally, say, what happened? Well, he died. He got hit by a car. Oh, it's just terrible. Then you find out that was 1922. <laughs> a long time ago. But he's very sentimental over what happened. He's very sentimental about many things. Very sentimental, usually about the wrong things. And has a high emotional investment in a lot of, of tinsel instead of being sentimental about the things that are important. Which leads him to a sexual, sexual immaturity. Sexual. <laughs> sexual immaturity. Which is kind of like watching a whole bunch of bad 1941 movies. <laughs> the sentimentality. Mistaking the sex drive for love. Mistaking a lot of things for love. Not even knowing what the hell love is. Getting in a situation like that. Which leads us into a sexual immaturity where we do not perceive, A, our own behavior, and it's rather weird, or it certainly isn't appropriate, or B, that that of those around us is not appropriate either. We encourage the neurotic in the, in the partner we've got. Now, a lot of this is because, as alcoholics, we have deviated from what's so-called normal averages. And we have never grown up. So we are sexually immature in that we keep chasing. Guys do this and let's see, what is it, Don Juan. Alcoholism has the unhappy effect of eating into our sexual powers. This means that when you have too much alcohol, you cannot perform adequately sexually. The male cannot get an erection. That means he can't get it up. This leaves women very frustrated because they are not able to achieve a good sexual relationship under those circumstances. In the woman, what it does is it makes her terribly indifferent to the whole proposition, resulting in, oh, John, I have a headache, or, oh, John, not now, or, oh, John, the children will hear, or, oh, John, forget it, whatever it's going to be. Alcohol does this. But in the beginning, what makes it a terribly frustrating experience is that alcohol improves the imagination and reduces the inhibitions, and you think, wow, this is going to be really okay. And everybody looks good, and they smell good, and everything's organized. But it does reduce our capacity to be successful sexual lovers. It shares with heroin, another great drug, the same property. 
of reducing sexual power to zero. And in the alcoholic who is running somewhere between 30 and 45, you will find that impotence, alcohol impotence, alcoholic impotence is a very big factor and explains an awful lot of divorces or infidelities of somebody who's going to look someplace else because you can't perform your side of the bargain. I know most guys say, oh, that's not me, that's not me. But we hear enough of the wives and the sweethearts who say, on the other hand, and the lovers who say, no, it is. It definitely is a factor. So consider this. This is something that is a personality quirk, a performance quirk, if you will, of alcoholics. Now, ambivalence. We have a problem as human beings in that we cannot run two emotions at the same time. But we try to. In other words, when you talk about love and hate, and you can love somebody and hate somebody at the same time, love and hate are the same emotion expressed differently. It means that they, that you care or these people matter. The opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. Because the indifference is the thing that turns you off. I couldn't care less is indifference. Ambivalence is the thing, though, where you have a love-hate relationship over a lot of things. And when you try to run two emotions, you turn out to be an emotional ping-pong ball. High one minute, down the next. High one minute, down the next. You keep going back and forth. And your body cannot stand this. And this is what happens to the alcoholic. And what the alcoholic does is that he drinks and he sedates himself. Alcohol is the world's greatest, not tranquilizer, but sedative. It is more powerful than any sleeping pill. It is more powerful than any kind of tranquilizer you can find. It is also more disastrous. It is also more addictive. And for those of you who have tuned in late to our unit, alcoholism is an addiction for 5% of the population. You got it. You got no way to get out of it. You got it. That's it. But what happens to us in this ping-pong business of you, you, you hate the boss and you hate this and you hate your life and you're going back and forth and all these emotions are going zing, zing, zing. You sedate and you couldn't care less. Alcohol is the I don't give a damn drug. So you get yourself all sedated. Ambivalence is the fact that when you get dry, you're going to keep on going back and forth. Got a thought for you. Since you can't operate two emotions at the same time, you don't have an ACDC operation, what you've got to do is pick your emotion. If when you are depressed, you will turn the coin over and start to count your blessings, as corny as that may sound, I think you will find that your depression will begin to leave. You can start off with the business that you are alive, and that the last drinking escapade did not kill you. And that you did not smash up the automobile the last time that you were driving drunk. And that if you've lost your license, maybe it's only two years instead of ten. Or maybe you just lost your license and you're not sitting in Trenton State Prison. If you start to count the blessings of your life, if you still got a wife left and you like her, if you still have a job, if you still have things going for you, you start to look at the blessings, the good sides of your life, and you will not stay depressed terribly long. Manipulation. In manipulation is where you try to get other people to do things which will get you into trouble or out of it. Most alcoholics are remarkable manipulators. You manipulate other people tremendously. And it's interesting to watch you as you start to manipulate us in the unit. What you find here is that you manipulate, and it's a thing that also is coupled with sabotage. 
What you try to do very often in a therapeutic situation is that you'll try to get the counselor to help you make up your mind. Let's take an example that you're still married and you really don't like this broad. And you talk about all the bad things and finally the guy says, well, I think you ought to maybe get a divorce. And you say, well, I never thought about it, maybe, and so you work it out. And finally, you get divorced. You leave the hospital. You go out and you find out that you're lonely. You're very lonely. And there's no one that will play games with you because you don't drink. And you go to AA and all those people are ugly. <laughs> Nothing happens good in your life. And so finally you get down to a point that you go into a bar to have a Coke. And you meet a very good looking blonde in the bar. And pretty soon one thing leads to another and she puts you down because you're drinking Coke. So pretty soon you begin to drink again. Now whose fault is that? That's the counselor's fault for telling you you ought to get divorced. And believe it or not, there are people who come back with these long tales of war and say, but you told me. So we don't tell you. We try not to. We try not to let you manipulate us to the point where you get yourselves in trouble. The manipulation that we do, we manipulate the people around us. We manipulate our lives. We manipulate our environment. We manipulate our employers. Many of us manipulate ourselves right in here. Now, today's session is to say, hey, gang, look at what you are. I don't know that we've got any magic bullets on how to fix what you are, but the first thing you need to do is to become honest and say, hey, yeah, that's me. I've got one of these anyway, or I've got this one and this one. Then you go find a counselor or you work with your doctor or you work in these groups and you talk about it and you talk it out and you get it out to where you can do something about it. Because what's going to kill you is the stuff that stays inside of you instead of coming out. By kill you, I mean get you back into booze and get you back in being what you were before you came in. You know one thing. Now, this is the alcoholic personality. Now, the person who's going to diagnose you is going to be you. So you better bone up and get your homework done. Learn all you possibly can while you're here so that you recognize those things in you that will drive you back into booze. You learn to live and you do it for yourself. You don't do it for anybody else. Because Barker stays sober for Barker and not for Penny, not for Dale, not for Dawn, not for Duke, not for Stephen. And you're going to stay sober for you. And so the Johns and the Bills and the Marys and the Susans and all the rest are going to be staying sober for yourself.